welcome to the Directors Club with Brad and Al. We are podcasting as one of the sites and podcasts of the Now Playing Network. Here in each episode of the Directors Club, we take a look at the films of a single director, their legendary classics, breakout films, personal labors of love, and hidden gems that may be found amongst their filmography. But this time we're doing something a little different as we take a look at the works of one of the most recognizable names in all of movie history and in all cultural history, one Walter Elias Disney. Hello, everyone. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And we and what brings us to go in to talk on Disney? Well, it's because one of the things we want to promote in the Directors Club is that you can never tell what kind of connections can come up when you to look at a creator's entire body of work. And here is a case where uh, well, a person, while not technically directing these films, very clearly has a vision and things that he wants to express that has manifested throughout the history of the films that he was involved in. Yeah, this is a little bit of an unusual look for us as uh, the Director's Club discussing a non-director and discussing him in two parts, because as you probably won't be surprised by, there is a lot of Disney. But if you look at how we have viewed directors, we, we, we kind of look, who is the driving force of the film? And the answer is different depending on which directors and which films we're talking about. But more often than not, we kind of subscribe to the auteur theory idea that the director is basically the visionary, the final say behind what the film ends up being. But there are exceptions, and a big exception are the films of Walt Disney, because while these films, mostly we're going to be talking about his animated output, all have directors, often they will have many, many directors, and so many creative people, from uh, story folks to the genius animators bringing these visions to life, to uh, the composers and everybody who works on these films. But in the arrangement of the Walt Disney Studios, the creative decisions all came back to Walt. He may not have wrote the stories, he may not have drawn the cells, but all these people had to bring it to Walt, and he had to say, yes, this is my vision. This is how I want a Disney film to look and feel. He was a studio head, but not just a businessman. He was a creative. He was involved in every aspect of this filmmaking. Disney deserves a mention for being one of the titans of literally inventing an entire phase of movie making and creating genres out of the films that he had made and redefining how they can be shown over by technical innovations and creative innovations over and over again. To describe Walt Disney as a visionary is so true it almost doesn't need to be said because we live in the world that's a result of his vision. Unlike a lot of filmmakers where you 
have to point out, well, this is the innovation that led us to this series of films and, and where we are now in this particular genre, we can all see from our own childhoods, from being parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles, what the family film has become and just how much of that comes from the brain of Walt Disney. And as we go on, it's going to be amazing just to look at how many barriers he broke. He did impossible things at least five times. (laughs) (laughs) And I can, speaking on me personally, I am amazed by animation because I feel that animation is one of the most purest ways that you can show things in filmmaking because unlike actors who are uh, put in a position and sets that are given uh, artificial lighting, but with animation, it literally can result from just a line. (laughs) Just the way the um, drawing and painting, like the very colors and those basic elements can be used to express anything that an imagination can, can come up with. Very true. And there was a tradition of animation already when Walt Disney came on the scene, but mm-hmm. uh, he completely advanced it in very short order. He started out in Kansas City having uh, opened the Laughogram Studios, and his first big project was based on a work he would return to again, uh, Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. He did mm-hmm. a series of movies starting with Alice's Wonderland in 1923 that was a combination, a somewhat of a primitive combination of live action and animation. <laughs> a actress, young Virginia Davis, would be physically placed in an animated background in an animated setting. And if we look at these now, they there's no getting around that they, they look primitive, even compared to animated live-action combinations that would happen very soon thereafter. But it shows that the very first thing he did was something innovative, and he came out with about uh, 50 of these Alice shorts, and then moved on to... Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. <laughs> Did you think I was going to say something else? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, his first uh, his first creation is uh, was not the the one that became such a familiar icon that people could recognize him just by three circles. Right. Although the the look is somewhat familiar, so he did a. a Again, a bunch of Oswald shorts uh, with what was then uh, Universal Pictures, but got into a bit of a legal hassle with his partner from the studios who wanted to claim ownership on Oswald, and Disney did not have uh, the legal rights to fight him on that. So, back to the drawing board. He is uh, now in Hollywood and finally creates his claim to fame, Mickey Mouse, in the very first animated uh, short to utilize synchronized sound, Steamboat Willie in 1928. 
Walt was the voice for Mickey Mouse. And you could see, even in these really early black and white cartoons, the level of creativity going on and kind of what the limits of animation were at the time, which in in the Disney case is this endless fascination with how forms and shapes can be distorted to comic effect, how many gags you can put into one of these things. So like my favorite bit of Steamboat Willie is when a uh, cow ends up eating the sheet music for Turkey in the Straw. And then uh, Mickey or one of the other characters uh, winds his tail up and sure enough, Turkey in the Straw comes out of the cow's mouth and the entire environment becomes this symphony where uh, everyday objects on a steamship are utilized to make music. And music is going to be so central to the Disney story. And it started right then and there with this first use of sound in the genre. Yeah, the anthropomorphizing of animated objects in song made a appearance up from the very first moment that you could synchronize the sound to. So that's a that's an interesting uh, element that resonates throughout his history. And he pretty much immediately builds on that by creating a series of shorts called Silly Symphonies where he takes uh, either contemporary popular music of the time or more uh, classical-oriented pieces or some originally written music and creates a short in that mold. And he used these silly symphonies starting, uh, basically they ran from 1929 through 1939, and a lot of the innovations that he'd create he experimented with first in the silly symphonies. One of the most important creations is the multiplane camera, which was first used in a silly symphony called The Old Mill. And when we start to talk about the Disney features of the Golden Age, this multiplane camera will be its own star. Basically, it creates an illusion of depth, almost a 3D effect, by having different backgrounds painted on different glass. Then the camera can uh, focus in on different planes of glass stacked one on top of another on top of another, creating that illusion. Mm-hmm. And I believe it also allowed for the foreground uh, pane of glass to move independently of the background pane of glass, which gives an effect that's called parallax. Yes. And d- thus makes the motion seem that much more lifelike and dynamic. Very true. Probably the height of this uh, Silly Symphony era was the short uh, The Three Little Pigs, which has become rightfully legendary and also provided one of the big hit singles of the time, uh, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf, which many people took as a way to rage against the depression going on then. People were so insecure and so... Uh, scared about losing everything, and there was such a rise in poverty that it was empowering to yell, I'm not afraid of this. I'm not afraid of this overriding thing that's going to destroy everything I have. I'm going to fight back against it. Even in this short, you start to get these hints of what 
made Disney so remarkable in that his attention to detail is rather astounding because he's in the destruction of straw mm-hmm. <laughs> and sticks. There's so much um, care was placed upon just how these things would just break apart, as well as the personality of the big bad wolf, who at different times is uh, boastful and uh, enraged <laughs> and and uh, laughing in triumph. It's expressed in such grand yet detailed terms through his very posture of and even the formation <laughs> of his fur at times. So true, and this idea of a big personality would at the same time lead to probably his most successful character of the era, which is not Mickey Mouse, who became the mascot of the studio, but also became kind of a respectable symbol of family entertainment. And the animators and Disney were looking for a way to get a little more aggressive <laughs> yes. Enter Donald Duck, brilliantly voiced by Clarence Nash. This is a character that had no bounds with comic possibilities, mostly because his key personality traits are uh, arrogance and rage. <laughs> Yet we still like him. <laughs> Because he will always get his comeuppance, and his rages are hysterical because you can never quite be sure exactly what he's saying. And one of, I think, the pleasures of these Donald Duck shorts are when he's going into these massive rages, and mostly you're hearing nonsense, but in the middle of that, you're just hearing something just weird or surprising that they snuck in there. (laughs) Yeah, that's really interesting on how early in the career, uh, Mickey was going to be moved over into more of a spokesman position. A bit of a straight man. Um, a, a, a bit, although he, he was known in the early cartoons for his ingenuity upon, right. upon mm-hmm. uh, uh, getting into problems and then, but, and then thinking out innovative ways of, uh, of solving them. And uh, as a romantic lead, because he was always looking to impress Minnie. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, uh, Donald has no ingenuity except for just getting angrier and angrier that his, when, his pl- <laughs> when his plans are foiled. As we're going to be talking about the features into the uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s, there's still going to be more and more Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, uh, Goofy, and Pluto shorts. Those mm-hmm. are going to keep going on. But how much of a mouse is Mickey? How much of a duck is Donald? And the answer is really not much. They're ut- utilizing these animal forms, but with the exception of, of Pluto, who is a dog... Yeah, the rest of them are pretty much people, <laughs> right? Yes, uh, the Rob Reiner film Stand by Me had a very nice conversation, <laughs> just noting, well, what kind of a dog is Pluto, and what kind of a dog is Goofy, <laughs> and and how do those dynamics co- uh, go into play? And that's that's also something that is uh, pretty notable throughout his films. Is when does is it important to have a person be realistic? And when is it important for a person to be, or, or animal, to be, to lack of a better word, a cartoon-ish figure? Well, at this point in animation history, everything leaned towards the cartoonish, towards the unrealistic, because six, seven-minute shorts were 
the norm. That is how cartoons were shown and distributed, uh, often in front of other films. But on to his second impossible idea. Walt Disney was going to change all of that and create the first animated feature film. And because of that, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, released in 1937, was initially known as Disney's Folly. (laughs) When the Wicked Queen is informed by her magic mirror that her stepdaughter, Snow White, has usurped her as the fairest of them all, she becomes determined to murder the princess. Snow White flees into the woods where she is taken in by seven little men, each of them with very specific personality quirks. The one word that I would personally use to describe Snow White as uh, both a fan of animation and just someone who recognizes just the difficulties upon what it takes to go and draw and color and get these figures to give a semblance of not just life, but personality, when you, I see Snow White and when people see Snow White today, whether you're a kid or an adult, I think the biggest word that would describe it for me is, is, is a bounty. It's not just that he figures the length. It looks like a guy who literally, it, the efforts of a man who has taken every dime and every ounce of brain power and at the same time, given a, a sentence that this is the last film he will ever make, <laughs> and everything that he wants to do in, in animated form, he needs to put on the screen. And moment by moment, scene by scene, and shot by shot, you see the effort to just try to express things in a way that no other film has tried to do. The stuff this movie does with water alone and with reflections alone would have been worth this movie's point in animation history. (laughs) It sets the template for everything that came after it from adapting a fairy tale to making musicals to the quality of the animation, which again, he was kind of, moving towards in some of those silly symphonies, but the level of animation in Snow White is revolutionary. And it had to be, because people were ready to scoff. People were ready to not believe you could care about an animated character. So they had to not just be good, they they had to be great. And you have this amazing personality animation going on where you're telling your main story about Snow White being pursued by the Wicked Queen and then kind of the movie's genius is to introduce the Seven Dwarfs because these characters kind of combine the two ideas of animation that you were mentioning earlier of 
what is realistic versus what is a cartoon. So while Snow White is designed to have a certain realism about her, as is the queen, the dwarfs are gag machines. Everybody knows the various ones, the sneezy, the bashful, the dopey, and whatnot. By the way, I just have to ask, mm -hmm. I'm going to give you 20 bucks if you can name all (laughs) seven. So that leads us to a scene where the dwarfs have not washed in forever, and because Snow White's there, they now need to wash before dinner, and there's a sequence of just endless slapstick. Really funny stuff that doesn't advance the plot, that isn't uh, part of the story, but adds to our enjoyment of the film anyway, because the, the story proper is actually pretty dark stuff. The Queen wants Snow White's heart. Snow White, when she realizes this, runs away into a really well-rendered, haunted forest. It's not really haunted, but from her perspective, it's haunted, and it creates some unforgettable imagery. So this is a very potent formula of plot A creating one mood, and then plot B contrasting with it, but also adding to it. Mm -hmm. It adds a depth to what you could depict in a single piece of animation big drama big horror and then com- and then comedy uh an extensive set of different varieties of entertainment the idea of a four quadrant movie would have in conventional filmmaking terms but now we're seeing it being done in an animated form it's remarkable to behold how smooth it can translate from from moments of incredible tension to moments of um, of humor, and then back again. The animation is so rich. The one thing that the animators were still working on, though, was really depicting the human form. So as a result, even though it would have been unprecedented back then to see this, when we look at the way human figures have been animated since then, even very soon after by Disney himself, the Snow White figure is not as sophisticatedly animated as the dwarves are. And same with uh, the prince and just the entire idea of maybe it's an uncanny valley kind of thing about how to depict uh, human characters is something that will be an evolutionary process. Mm, there is a li- I see what you're saying. There's a little bit of a discrepancy between how they how they behave and the and the more exaggerated ways that the dwarf that the dwarves behave. And it skirts it in a way that his later films that his later films don't. But the fact that it's even successful at all is I think a great triumph. Right. Because you don't usually expect to go and encounter some vastly non-humanoid behaving person <laughs> in real life, and yet you're expected to believe this in this story, and you are rolling with it in this in this film, which is also a thing that I don't that this is something that was never not incredibly uncanny <laughs> a difference in films before that, to, and to have them both inhabit the same frame mm-hmm. is a big bold step on Disney's part. And that was that became, for the most part, an incredible success. And adding into that, the success of the hit songs, from Hi-Ho to Someday My Prince Will Come, 
the uh, Whistle While You Work. These are songs that are still known today, and Disney will have a consistently great stable of songwriters adding this other element to just about all of his films. Mm, it's pretty cool to think about how this was kind of formed on a person who was then steeped in films that were not just part of this four quadrant word, which was uh, attempting to appeal to adults and kids giving drama, giving comedy and so forth, but also in a very steeped musical omnibus tradition where people were going to have uh, comic moments and then whole musical uh, moments. This was, this was something that he and the, his generation were very aware of when forming like Snow White. And this is something where he, again, managed to go manifest this into an entire feature, but one that's entirely drawn and make it completely work in a manner that n has never been depicted before at this length and with this kind of uh, scope. That's a really good point. And all these tropes are appearing that will become very familiar with the princess story, particularly Snow White's affinity for talking with the animals, who play a big role as supporting characters here. Mm-hmm. And there's where that bounty I was describing earlier also comes in. Because even in the most robust of the cartoon shorts that had uh, been around, it's one thing to see uh, several animals interacting or several characters interacting. But when after Snow White has her horrible first evening in the woods and, the, and you see the sky brighten, my God, man, there's at least... Three dozen creatures are watching her. <laughs> uh, think of the think of the ambition that requires to go and say we we have need to have this many this many birds and chipmunks and raccoons and deer and one turtle. <laughs> it's important to have, <laughs> right, the, one, have, to have the, the turtle. The one the one turtle. <laughs> And to imbue all of them with a particular kind of personality and demeanor in how they react to Snow White. The sheer Herculean effort towards getting all these elements animated <laughs> in a shot is is astounding to literally behold as just a project. Like there's a scene where those these animals are the animals are helping uh, Snow White clean up the cottage, and you're seeing something like. 15 or 20 creatures all moving around this kitchen, but you know, they're washing every dish, readjusting every cup, cleaning out the cobwebs from the, uh, the corners of the, the top of the ceiling. And for people who were used to just three animated figures sort of moving in a semi-repetitive <laughs> motion, this must have appeared to audiences the same way audiences looking at the Matrix for the first time when Neo took the red pill and went into the Matrix itself. It was one of the biggest holy S-word moments in film to just see so much animation put together in one frame. And people were duly blown away because Snow White became the blockbuster of the era. I think only supplanted a, a couple years later when Gone with the Wind came out. But <laughs> Snow White was huge. So then the question becomes, how do you follow it up? Yes, he put it so all out there in that film. And what are, what are you going to do to try to build off of that? 
Disney's decision was to release Pinocchio in 1940. of Geppetto the puppet maker who creates a marionette of a young boy and then wishes upon a star for it to come to life and be his son. The blue fairy grants this wish but with some conditions. With the aid of Jiminy Cricket tasked to be his conscience, Pinocchio must now face a world of conmen temptations and lessons learned the hard way. So we've just been very complimentary about the animation in Disney's feature-length debut. But I would say that the animation in his second film blows that first film away. Mm. In fact, I would say that if you take his uh, films of the holy year of 1940 in total, it might be considered the height of animation. Huh. Because Pinocchio ups the ante in every single way. Anything that was even a little bit of a rough edge in Snow White has pretty much now been perfected. I think the story is even more involving and flows more smoothly as a, as a narrative, but the absolute jaw-dropping animation effects that start with all these cuckoo clocks and knickknacks. You're talking about bounty of all these things yes. in this uh, wooden factory and leads into a chase at sea with a gigantic whale with every single bit of it being animated to the full effect of excitement and epicness. This is something that blows me away every time I watch it in 2019. I can't even imagine what this must have looked like in 1940. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, this film, along with Snow White and uh, several others in this era of early Disney, are just ones that I just respond on an intrinsical awe and admiration of what I'm just simply the imagery that's passing into through my eyeballs and into my brain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the whale chase in particular, so much effort is effectively pouring out of the screen, not just in depicting the massive bulk of what uh, what such a creature would impose, but just the great hand-drawn waved 
curved lines of the foam that this whale leaves in his wake that just provides out the velocity and how these waves buffet the raft that uh, Geppetto and Pinocchio are on. It spins it in such a frenetic direction. It's just absolute visual poetry in motion at one of the highest ever levels depicted. And you you said the key words, hand-drawn. Because we see a lot of great epic animation today. Um, we're recording uh, the day before the Oscars are about to air. And uh, the uh, an animated Spider-Man movie, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, is most likely going to win Best Animated Feature and has this assault of all kinds of animated styles that look effortless and shows what can be done with computer animation, which is what we work with today. But if you then take us back and look at what can be done with every frame being drawn, inked, and painted by hand, every one of them, that's a whole different story. Mm -hmm. And also, it shows a greater development upon something that you may not expect from animation, which is, this is animation which actually has special effects. One of the things that Walt Disney did in his animation studio is that he had a series of animators whose entire purpose was not tied to a particular project or story or tale that he was going, he was making or film that he was making, but was done because you need an effect of water, an effect of fire, mm-hmm. and an effect of light, and uh, and sparkles, and snow, and rain. And this was a group of people who were dedicated towards making bringing that effect on a screen. And this is something that uh, broke brand new ground with just the manifestation of the blue fairy to take one uh, to take one example. How this light just illuminates in one of a very early example, maybe even of animated equivalent of cinematography, as it has to illuminate the backgrounds and the characters mm-hmm. as it arrives before it creates the where you see the form of the fair of the fairy's figure. That was just a jaw dropping. Yeah, Disney understood that all this great animation is going to be appreciated most if it can be put to the service of a strong narrative. And this is one of his strongest. It's kind of like the greatest scared straight movie ever (laughs) made. Because we're watching this kid who knows nothing, because it's literally his first day on Earth, having to deal with every uh, temptation that a little kid might face in the uh, form of... uh, this fox named uh, Honest John, who gets him to stray away from uh, going to school to first have him get into show business and, mm-hmm. and finally uh, tempting him with something that leads to one of the more horrifying sequences Disney ever created. Very true. I want to go and point out that the ability to take uh, realistic figures and com- and put them in the same film with with figures that are more exaggerated, it's he he upped the challenge by literally having a movie featuring humans and an animated puppet person, but then also animals that act like 
completely like animals, right. except that there's a, a fox, a fox human, and his ca- and his cat human assistant walking around amongst humans and help recruit Pinocchio for working as a part of a puppet show, mm-hmm. which uh, features a very interesting uh, song. No strings on. There's no strings on me. It's interesting because it's a thematic connection to the story. Who controls Pinocchio is a concern that the story has, which makes his ability of being a puppet fit and resonate and be more felt as an intrinsic part of uh, himself. As is, what does it mean to be a, quote-unquote, real boy? Right. Concepts are given personifications in this film. So Jiminy Cricket, who's kind of our point of view character, because Pinocchio is a little a little too naive to be the point of view character. So we th- we see things through Jiminy Cricket is given the role of his conscience. So we think of the conscience as an abstract thought, but Disney creates an actual character meant to personify that. And so when it comes to the idea of lying, the story provides a visual representation of that, too, in a nose that keeps growing. Yeah, that's one of the fun things I noticed when I was looking at the movie for for this podcast is how the Pinocchio's growing nose and the res- what the results of truant children uh, are very well known to people today. But as they're shown in the movie, it's actually expressed as like, truisms or wise sayings or or philosophical points like you're in the case of the nose for example it's it's as a result of the fairy telling pinocchio a lie can grow and grow on itself so you just can't eventually can't avoid it like you said it's the representation like seeing a bird in a hand is worth two in the bush mm-hmm. it's like but this is shown in the terms of a sto- in, uh, in terms of a, a story and a plot line <laughs> as is the idea of Kids who misbehave and don't uh, and uh, don't want to have responsibility event make jackasses of themselves, and to be just a jackass will be your lot in life. This is something that you can express towards kids growing up as a philosophical way, and <laughs> boy, does it get it the, the the animated version of that. Right. So now we can get to attach animation quality to theme. Mm-hmm. And this uh, stuff on Pleasure Island is something else because you're definitely creating this unique, exaggerated world. But when the kids start changing into donkeys, it's done in such a way that will become Disney tradition of creating some really intense scenes uh, that kids can handle. Disney has shown the kids can handle this kind of stuff. But yeah, when you see... It's just in shadow. The one, the one kid, uh, Lampwick, com- Lampwick, completely changed into a donkey. Uh, it, it is as horrifying as any Jekyll Hyde transformation uh, in any of those movies. Mm-hmm. It's something that is uh, has the same kind of horrible feeling of loss of control that you would have an American werewolf in London. Mm-hmm. But yet, it's to be able to do that and depict it in a way that is not gory. But will freak the can freak people out nonetheless is kind of stunning how he right. the, how he get, managed to make that work and teach a lesson because this movie is very serious about there are consequences to not being a good kid. I don't think a movie will be this dedicated towards <laughs> child justice until Willy Wonka comes on the scene. <laughs> well, well, there there is that yes, and but it also 
harkens to something that doesn't really get represented too much. Uh, the closest equivalent I could say is how tough a kid's life would be is in the another fable, but a live action one, The Night of the Hunter. Hmm. Pinocchio, there's certain points where he's tempted, but a lot of the temptation doesn't come from him, for example, enjoying playing pool or drinking to the excess that um, that uh, that the, uh, that any other kid would. So much is that the things that will lead kids astray is just an excuse for other adults to exploit them. Mm-hmm. And just how harsh that world is is one of the big undercurrents of what's happen what's happening in this. When the kids become jackasses of themselves, they're just being sent off to all these different menial jobs where they will be, they will never be able to be more than just these effective pack animals. But what's it really saying? And not, and not just in the sense that child labor laws had not had just had, <laughs> did not have a reform that long ago, per se, but also what kind of humans it would be with those kind of opportunities that they would miss by not being behaving and by just simply indulging in uh, too much cigars, too much right. pool, too mm-hmm. much uh, too much roughhousing and destruction. And we see uh, Pinocchio uh, grow his own set of donkey ears and a tail. And the only way he can cleanse himself now of this is through the uh, heroics of, at the end of the film with Monstro the Whale. And also the bond between him and and his father figure, Geppetto, who's also really wonderfully rendered. And rendered, uh, and here's where kind of Disney keeps building on his own animation lessons, rendered less realistically. So they're not trying to create a normal-looking old man, but instead something uh, more akin to a dwarf kind of animation. Mm, that's a really good point. He's uh, he's so heightened in his enthusiasms towards his work mm-hmm. in a way that the dwarves really are belting out "Hi ho, it's off to work I go" right. as they engage in their mining activities. But I mean, visually as well, with exaggerated features. Oh, definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. Just the, from the dancing to just even the startled double take reactions. There, <laughs> it's more tied in to the to the kind of heightened reactions that animation could provide as attempts to just make it like a, a complete human performance. No, that's a, that's, that's very well put. <laughs> and um, it also la- leads into this, um, uh, something that Disney refined here that will also show up manifest uh, in his later films, where, because whereas in Snow White, all the animals help out, and it's pre- and they're pretty. You pretty much can't tell one one helpful chipmunk from another. Mm-hmm. Here is the one where they where Disney that's the sidekicks. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, the cat Figaro and the fi- and the fish Cleo, who uh, by the way has if you if you think about it too much, which I'm about to, <laughs> it just goes on one hell of a strange journey. <laughs> <laughs> where you not only end up having her hanging around uh, uh, areas where fish are being eaten constantly, <laughs> but uh, right, and seems fine with it. <laughs> yeah, but then also is sitting inside the belly of a whale, still in her fishbowl. Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking on the animal-human side of things, I want to make a note on on Jiminy Cricket, which I think is a, who's a fascinating character, especially seeing him today. He is uh, um, 
uh, as a conscience, he's fairly mediocre upon it. But sure. one of the things that I one of the things that I really found interesting looking at him today is I now see him from the vantage point of I'm a person who's seen Charlie Chaplin films. Hmm. And I found it really interesting how when he arrives to try and find some place to stay, he is dressed in an incredibly threadbare, tramp-like outfit. And one of the things I think Pinocchio is working through is it's his sense of finding a value of worth in his life. It's interesting how the final moment is not that Pinocchio and Geppetto are reunited and things are going well for them, but he gets a badge of gold to show that he's had a job well done. And what does that say about both the kind of sense of being able to restore dignity from the era of the depression that you mm-hmm. were just uh, point pointed out a little earlier, and also about how the tramp in so many Chaplin films is, uh, while he remains where he is, how his he gets his value from helping others. That's a really good point, and it's uh, shown visually because when Pinocchio is brought to life, Jiminy Cricket also gets a new set of fancy duds to go along with his new job as a conscience. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, this uh, it's a timeless film, but if you look at it kind of within its time, it, it, it is a film taking place just as the Depression is winding down and just as World War II is beginning. The United States is not yet in the war, but Europe is fully at war, which actually directly affected the box office results for Pinocchio, because Mm. as much of a classic as we think of it as, it was a financial failure. A lot of which is due to the fact that there was no way now to distribute films in Europe. The war had basically ended that. The Disney process is that a lot of films are going to be developed at the same time. And so outside factors are going to have an effect, but not necessarily on the films immediately following. And and I want to go and note on that is that that also speaks towards Disney's astounding level of ambition, not just as an animator and a creative person, but just as a sheer entrepreneur and businessman. It doesn't matter how successful your first movie is. That takes some massive amount of confidence slash ego to go, all right, our first movie did really, really well. All right, now we're going to have these five other movies that I'm going to slow, we're going to go release over the next series of years. Now, he was encouraged by the success of Snow White, but he would not get that encouragement again from Pinocchio, and would have even less reason to be encouraged when you consider the commercial possibilities of his next film, Fantasia, also from 1940. Well, the cool breeze came on Tuesday, and the corn's a bumper crop.
This anthology of animated vignettes ranges from the changing of the seasons and the origins of life on Earth to one town's demonic apocalypse and a magical Mickey Mouse adventure, all set to classical music masterpieces from the likes of Bach, Beethoven, and Tchaikovsky. I have a particular double-sided reaction onto Fantasia. It is a kind of bittersweet awe. We've already talked about all the different kinds of innovations that and ambitions that have marked Walt Disney's sense of trying to make things go further and further and further. And in Fantasia, I not only find it's a success in so many more dimensions than even his previous two films had done, but... It's a case where the he moved animation to a level further than the culture was able to accept or respond to. Maybe even that's a case that uh, they wouldn't even respond to it at that level today. And so I feel that like this is a moment where animation could have gone to such a bigger level with with such a a, a a figure like Disney uh, that there was a bit of a retreat after Fantasia and to, to not just his detriment, but I feel to everyone's detriment. It's so true. It's fun to, to look at the idea of what if Fantasia was financially successful, which it was not because of the same wartime situation that affected Pinocchio, but also because, especially now looking in hindsight, we can see this is an incredibly uncommercial venture. It's brilliant. It's ambitious. It's something that is amazing even to conceive of this marriage of animation and classical music at the highest levels. The original plan, had this been a success, was that Fantasia would be, would, would be re-released again and again, switching out old vignettes with uh, new vignettes, with new pieces of music, and it would be re-released regularly as a different film, still with elements of the original. This is something that in our current home video age... We look at it in a particular way, but but if you look at it in an era where there was no way to see a film other than to go to a theater, it was another revolutionary idea. Unfortunately, this is one that uh, did not get to be realized. Mm-hmm. While classical music and classical music pieces had were a little more prevalent in the the popular culture back then as they than they were are today, it was still even thought to be an affront, and the greatest overused term to describe art, pretentious, Mm -hmm. to just try and take. A a sense of, who the hell do you think you are to take these pieces that have uh, been in classical form for hundreds of years and draw dinosaurs and dancing mushrooms and centaurs uh, on it? Like, how dare you? And so there was a um, it was attacked on both sides. It's both a sense of, de- of quote-unquote, demeaning 
these original works on from the from intellectual circles, and then and then the sense that you were giving people their vegetables in a way from as opposed to those delightful shorts and fairy tales of his earlier films. It was reviewed by both uh, film and music critics, mm. and the film critics loved it. The music critics did not, because they thought it was kind of a bastardization of these timeless classics to have them incorporated into animation. And again, you just can't stress enough the the newness of it and, and, and how daring it was, especially when you incorporate a piece like The Rite of Spring by Igor Stravinsky, which was the only example in Fantasia of what would have then been referred to as modern classical music. Stravinsky was still alive when Fantasia came out. The piece was only about 30 years old and was considered strange and avant-garde by the standards of uh, classics from uh, previous centuries. Mm -hmm. And so that he was willing to not just do the famous pieces, which he did do pieces that everybody knows, but that he was willing to take a chance, even in this dream project says a lot. Mm -hmm. The sheer ambition that got on display and that I feel in every different angle, the more I look at the at a different facet of Fantasia, it staggers me out to this day. I think Fantasia, in its way, is a version of recreation of your interests, every bit as intricate as Synecdoche, New York, or or Charlie Kaufman's other meta examinations into the creative mm-hmm. process. It is a feeling about the things that had interested Disney, who's now figure treated as this beloved Uncle Walt, who is has his nephew on his knee and is going to tell him a delightful story. But Walt Disney was also an incredible businessman, a huge logistical genius, and an intellectual who appreciated this classical music. And there's this generosity that I feel in Fantasia upon, well, I have things that I can express in animation. How can I both do right by these amazing pieces of music, but also put this in a way so that people don't need an an education in a classical music theory, can can appreciate and find value in these songs and... How I'm showing them through animation. It's very key how the very first piece, again, the very first, there's no guiding fairy tale in the first one. Mm-hmm. It is an, the most, arguably, the most abstract piece and has an intro where the narrator is describing to us in the audience, we're just going to, it's going to start with the orchestra and the different pieces of the orchestra, but then it's going to just turn into colors mm-hmm. and it's okay. You don't. Have, it's not a story. It's just going to be these impressions that you just get from what you're seeing. Right. That that's for uh, Bach's uh, Toccata in Fugue, mm-hmm. and the idea of abstract animation alone would have been such a strange thing to present. 
but 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 because it very uh, skillfully glides into the abstraction through live action shots of the orchestra in uh, colored shadows into further and further strange kind of imagery as the music envelops. You're right. It just is like a process of bringing you into another world. And then each subsequent piece keeps doing this. So then you have uh, the Nutcracker from Stravinsky, which is taken completely away from the story of the ballet and turned into kind of this... uh, dance of the seasons so that uh flowers and and plant life of it, of each season gets its own ballet to the music and it's gorgeous and you were talking about special effects in earlier films and and I don't think Disney's use of special effects has ever been matched as far as Fantasia goes I mean this is imagery that you just can't believe you're seeing yeah and each piece has its own distinct animation style. And the characters are depicted differently. The backgrounds are shown differently. Mm -hmm. And it ranges from things that are attempting as much as possible to be a photorealistic depiction of what dinosaurs may have looked like to like, as in the very big, again, from the very beginning, the most abstract versions of light and color. And even those dinosaurs were revolutionary because they weren't cartoony dinosaurs it would have been expected if disney were to portray dinosaurs that they would have been anthropomorphic and have these human-like qualities they made them as savage and as our imagination of actual dinosaurs can imagine possibly the only example of non-silly-looking dinosaurs on film until Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. And it ties into something that I think may make, like, Disney the most visual environmental activist that's ever been depicted in history. Because, clearly, nature and the natural world is something that is a, a source of great joy and wonder for him. It's something that is a concern of his, that he wants to just go manifest that there's something absolutely gloriously joyful upon what nature brings that he wants to depict on screen. Like from all the forest animals in Snow White, who are they're all so helpful, and there's so much charm delivered to, to all of them. I kind of looked that there's a... that. The portrayals in the woods, especially those old school stories, the fairy tales that a lot of films were based on, the woods are not a nice place. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and like what you said on the Nutcracker, how it's the, the music is used as a sense of the changing seasons and how nature itself can be glorious upon how the snow etches in on branches and water and and how the and how the how the colors can change and how nature um puts in hibernation and begins anew so it's some something i feel is intrinsic on disney and it's you're getting it poured out in often again its purest form but yet at the same time it goes more multidimensional too in the charlie kaufman way because what does it say that you introduce your next animated film not with a title cards that are done in a standard 
format drawn in a colorful way to show its animation, but starts off with an orchestra coming in and mm-hmm. tuning up and then having a narrator talk with this. This is a way of showing behind the curtain of one of the tools that he was using in filmmaking to put up the music for his songs. And the music was so central that he recorded the orchestra in a completely different way than was the fashion of the time, Mm. which is by placing microphones at various places in the studio, he created kind of a a proto-stereo effect before stereo was even a thing. And the initial run of this film was only shown in a roadshow presentation with theaters that were specifically decked out to be able to accommodate the new Fantasound system, which is what they called it. There were only 16 prints of this film in its initial run, uh, and and so its release was limited. Eventually, a re-release happened later with about an hour of content cut out from the film. But happily, we get to see the film now in its original glory. Yeah, great, great. We're very, very fortunate Mm -hmm. to be able to get that, that footage back. And look at how he ties in music and animation and expression to try to get a look behind the camera. And think about how phenomenally generous and forward-thinking it is to literally have a song to introduce a character that's the soundtrack of your very own movie. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We're introducing a soundtrack, and as the line happens, it animates the different sounds to create a whole thing that isn't representing anything, but just how visually things can become interesting through the use of sound. It's a return to abstraction. Absolutely. Just the value of animation and literally sound and vision in its most basic form gets shown in this picture. The most famous piece that got this project going was uh, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, which was originally conceived as a Mickey Mouse short with the classical music. But as that sequence became more and more elaborate, as they realized the water effects that would need to happen and the brooms and how that sequence just builds and builds in the same way a great piece of classical music builds and builds, they realized that they had a stronger concept than even one short could handle. And that's how this project grew into what we ended up with. I'm going to say I'm straight up haunted by an image that happens after that sequence, which mm-hmm. may surpassed, but at the very least rivals all the great water effects we just described for Pinocchio, as these brooms that are, are dumping buckets of water in ever-increasing sprays, even if they're when they're underwater at the time. And you get these just great expressionistic nightmares of dozens of, of shadows of sticks moving in on one diagonal across mm-hmm. another diagonal as a big pail comes into the frame with a with a, yet another bucket of excess water. But after that, there is a scene where Mickey goes and walks up to the conductor, a very famous conductor at the time, Leopold Stokowski. It was a very famous conductor at the time and shakes his hand and thanks him. And... 
what does that mean that Disney takes his signature character, the character behind his his origin point, to give him that moment of gratitude? You know, it fits into kind of a general attitude about film. I I think we both have with which is an absolute despising of the idea of something being highbrow or lowbrow mm-hmm. or what people's reactions to something might be that's apart from the film itself. And what a great moment that is to say that Mickey Mouse can be high art and classical music can be entertainment. And these things can all live in one mix for all of us to appreciate and enjoy with whatever we bring to those things. And I wish that people who dismiss either art films or popular films would kind of just have this image in their head of that it's all film. Dude, that's incredibly well put. And I cannot agree more on this sentiment. Something that I feel that Fantasia is one of the greatest and grandest statements to bring out that very sentiment. And what could finish this thing off other than the devil himself? Because, wow, that night on Bald Mountain sequence is animation at just another high level. I, I think it was, must it must have been influenced by Murnau's uh, Faust. And the idea that Disney films are just for children is, if not destroyed in other places, is destroyed here as we see this very dark story of what happens when night basically envelops this town into a satanic hellscape. Yeah, with maniacal figures uh, dancing and and swooping around out through the air, and the massive form of a demonic figure completely overshadowing this small town. It's immense in many senses of the word, and works on this dark level that was just shocking for a Disney film, even uh, even today. And it's also interesting how it follows, uh, a, how it follows with Ave Maria, mm-hmm. which is almost as still as the action from Night on Bald Mountain was fevered. Yeah. And one of the most impressive uses of the multiplane camera, in this case, the multiplane camera was made uh, horizontal. And an entire studio of, I think they said it was something like 150 feet of animation cells were placed side by side in order to create this uh, panning effect of Mm. this entire processional. It's one of those moments that Fantasia is full of is basically things we have never seen before. Right. As just a collection, I feel it is to animation what Stanley Kubrick's film 2001 is to science fiction in that it's one of the great ultra master classes of an entire form. And while there are other animated films that have surpassed Fantasia in this or that aspect, no other film that I've seen 
is so great at being an advocate towards the genre it is in, in showing what animation can do and the different ways that such a thing can be done. Definitely. And and I myself can't really decide which Disney film of 1940 is my favorite animated film, whether it be Fantasia or Pinocchio. Mm -hmm. But this, this one-two punch, very few things have ever shown the potential of an art film like these two films, one after the other. They did everything except make money. Mm. So for his next movie... Disney had to correct that, or they wouldn't be able to make any more movies. I'm learning to fly, but I ain't got wings. Coming down is the hardest thing. His subsequent film is Dumbo from 1941. When Mrs. Jumbo's baby arrives, the infant becomes a subject of ridicule and scorn, thanks to his giant ears. Mockingly dubbed Dumbo, the young elephant is befriended by a fast-talking mouse who thinks he can make him a success, especially when Dumbo's afflictions become the source of his hidden talent. So there's kind of two things going on here. There's a, a moving forward and a backing off. The animation in Dumbo is gorgeous, as would be the case in every Disney Golden Age feature. But some of the scope and ambition that we've been seeing had to be pulled back a little bit if the studio was going to make films that were going to be financially successful, that were going to appeal to large numbers. So this is a simpler story. It's more of a children's story. It's more in the spirit of some of the great animated shorts that Disney had been working on. And it's got a lot of lovely moments. I certainly don't want to dismiss Dumbo in any way, but it's a little bit of a... When you watch all of the Disney films, there's a little bit of whiplash coming after the 1940 films. Hmm. This is very, very much a pulling back for me. It is very severely. He is simplifying the sentiments and things he wants to show in this film to the most basic child levels that he could. The feeling of not being accepted. Mm -hmm. The... Uh, feelings that some part of you is setting you apart from the group and the mother being put out of the picture where the support can get is gets withdrawn and the, the and that particular first sting of missing their parents yeah there's elements of such pure emotionalism in dumbo particularly uh, near the beginning and the separation of Dumbo from his mother, I think, is probably the the dramatic uh, heft of the film, especially since it's pretty much done wordlessly. Uh, you mentioned Jiminy Cricket as, as Charlie Chaplin, and I think uh, mm -hmm. Dumbo as a silent character uh. also kind of evokes for me some of the more some of the sentimentality that Chaplin might have in a film like The Kid 
where you're pushing some really primal buttons. So when you have that scene where uh, Mrs. Jumbo's trunk is uh, just long mm-hmm. enough to reach uh, to reach Dumbo, that that's affecting stuff. Also, oh yeah, being effective because of the environment that the film creates, the use of storms as the circus tent is being uh, erected and the use of, uh, of shadows as characters are, are introduced. I think uh, one, one scene where, uh, where the mouse uh, approaches and, and you just see a shadow almost looks like Nosferatu approaching in that movie. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, re- I remember that. It's like, I think it's by a set of stairs. Yeah. And so <laughs> that's 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 one part that's really cool to look at these films today and, and to think that because this is the second time we've noted a, a, a brilliant German expressionist director, F.W. Murnau, yes. in, two, <laughs> in, in two different uh, Disney films. <laughs> that's I find that just... Remarkable and very, very cool. <laughs> and he's, yeah, his use on, his use of storms and, and the montage of building in the big top are depicted just really, really well. The use of weight was something I found really interesting on here. He's, it may sound a little silly but when talking about figures that are drawn on a sheet of paper, mm-hmm. but when a stork is carrying little jumbo around, you can feel the kind of weight on the end of his bill that he's ca- you can feel that he's carrying a big weight. And I also think that the film gives an- the animators some pretty nice rein towards using the bulk of the elephants, especially when they're involved in this incredibly dangerous uh, pyramid as part of the show. And the sight of what is tons and tons of pachyderms moving around trying to maintain balance uh, must have been a, a quite a trial to really put together, but also comes across of people really experimenting by just how the hell are these, right. <laughs> the, all the, these massive entities are going to be in balance. Again, it's the bounty that you referred to because mm. there's so much more detail than we, than we would expect in that scene. Especially you have, you look at how, ev- how weights and counterweights affect everything physically even though you could animate something to just be fanciful the animators are trying to establish some kind of some kind of real realism some kind of way that physics makes sense in the world of these films although not always right as we will note in what might be the most extraordinary sequence of dumbo the pink elephants scene dumbo and his friend find themselves uh, immersed in some alcohol and uh, dumbo's fever dream is is quite something to see <laughs> yes in what up to this point is a very solid Kids' tale in a, in elephant form of like with with the uh, the scene with uh, him and his mother was was happened before that. We get a moment of what I've got to say is pure <laughs> sort of cinema surrealism, and I don't mean surrealism in the way you say David Lynchian in this substitute for being weird. <laughs> the the surrealists had a particular 
reason for their kind of the the things that they did. And my take on it is that by by having things show up in different forms that you're not expecting, mm-hmm. it's meant to kind of broaden your thought process to like look at different elements in different in in new and interesting ways. And oh my god, they let that loose in a way that's just bracing and actually really maybe one of the more disturbing things that Disney did just in the sense of how it can mess your mind up. Well, it's very influenced by Salvador Dali in particular, mm. who actually would later work uh, with Disney on, on one of their shorts. Ha! I just have to jump in to say yeah. there is a moment when I first, when I saw this when I was a little kid, which part of that sequence is an elephant whose arms and legs are all heads of other yes. elephants. <laughs> And for watching it for this podcast, I was looking at that and go, ugh, still got it, Disney. Wow. <laughs> for sure. Now, there, there's a lot that really works with Dumbo, but I, there are some things that might not work so well. I think whereas Jiminy Cricket was a triumph of the sidekick trope, Timothy the Mouse is somewhat annoying. And I, I have to <laughs> I have to note that every time I see kids with Disney character toys, and many of them are Dumbo, I have never seen anybody lovingly hug a Timothy Mouse doll. This character is like this carnival huckster, salesman, just uh, fast-talking, annoying little dude. <laughs> <laughs> well, we may be avoiding the... Uh, pardon my expression the elephant in the room <laughs> uh that uh dumbo suffers from a uh, a horribly insensitive portrayal i am of course talking about the fast uh, talking hustler from new jersey <laughs> the this <laughs> of which that is what timothy the mouse is he is uh, he has this thick jersey accent and he's always looking to try and go and take Dumbo and not just not make him, for example, reunite with his mother, but make him famous. Yeah. I'm going to add a, a, an undercurrent on here that may or may not apply because, as you said, like Disney films had a bunch of had a bunch of lead time, although I believe that Dumbo was a project that had been shelved earlier and that Disney had revived it. Right. The time, Even though the film's pre-productions had been going on, the timing of release often depends on where the studio is in a business sense mm-hmm. at the time. So yeah. they needed a hit. Right. And think about that in the context of where does Timothy get his motivation? He needs to have a success. That success can only come from the show needing to go on. <laughs> right? <laughs> so how much of that comes from the studio who's creating this work and the situation they find themselves in? This is complicated even further by the fact that during the Dumbo production, there was a pretty massive animator strike going on Mm. and much of the workforce of disney ended up having to go on strike uh not necessarily the big names who we associate with disney but the ink and painters the people who are working Uh at the the grassroots Uh level we're being very complimentary towards uh towards disney but he had some darker elements and one of them 
resulted from this strike is he became somewhat of an anti-union zealot and somebody who was not at all appreciative of workers' rights. He believed more in personal loyalty. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Another thing that I find floating under the surface, like the hippopotamus family in the film, which is uh, that there's all these different groups in the country that are there to put on a show. The master of ceremonies at the circus is, an, is a, a clearly an Italian figure, and when the people are building the big top, they they have they sing a a, a, a very cheerful song about how. Oh, they're just the, we're the people working on the circus and we, that's our, our duty to work in the rain and the snow to get this, uh, to get this big top up and running. And so this sense of the, I guess the sawdust and tinsel nature of the business they find themselves in, the, the idea that it's this hard scrabble life trying to go and get people entertained and the dedication that people must do mm-hmm. to, to, to do that. And how it's also part of uh, cultures and ethnicities that uh, is their sort of leg up. Yes, ethnicity is going to be something that's also going to be a repeated motif in a lot of Disney, sometimes to benign effect and sometimes to pretty disturbing effect, as Dumbo provides the first, but not the last example of, uh, which are these uh, crows that come into the picture around the time Dumbo is figuring out that, that he can fly. And they are pretty crude ethnic stereotypes of African-American minstrel caricatures. There is a lot of antics associated with the kind of entertainment that uh, black folks were only allowed to be viewed in in this context in the period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I first um, had seen Dumbo and and then I'd heard about this controversy with the crows. Then the next time I had seen the film, I was looking on that and I I remember being taken a little bit aback by it because I I felt that while while the crows weren't exactly speaking proper English, there was not a lot of proper English being spoken by a great many other mm-hmm. characters in the film. And in fact, you could argue that the um, that the people speaking the most proper English are these four incredibly um, stuffy, obnoxious uh, elephants who shun Dumbo. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wasn't thinking that the film was placing a lot of detriment on that. They were helpful. They get get the method of where he can believe that he can fly and uh, eventually going to end up supporting him. And frankly, I actually even liked the different the different outfits that they were wearing. <laughs> I, so at this, when I first looked at that, I thought, "Well, okay, where where is the quote unquote offense, right?" And and I think I the way that I came across to that analogy is as a lifelong Chicagoan. Until uh, one Michael Jordan came onto the scene, if people if tourists were visiting Chicago, or you would talk to people who were not from town about Chicago. Invariably, they would pull out their fingers and point them in a machine gun-like motion mm-hmm. <laughs> because Chicago was just known as this crime-ridden denizen of Al Capone and gangsters. And even if there might be some things enchanting about that kind of depiction, the fact that that was the only thing <laughs> that, that Chicago was allowed to be thought of 
was so ridiculously limiting. So that was finally my in on being a more a little more enlightened onto what what makes the these crows like not cool today. Right. It's in con it's in the context of an already existing uh, stereotypical and negative trope that would have been just the norm in 1941. But we, we can look at now and see that that historical context uh, is very, very problematic. But Dumbo as a whole, for me, is, is kind of a mixed bag. It, it doesn't reach the masterpiece level that I, I think the, the last two films we discuss do, but there's enough really impressive animation in it that makes it, I think, a worthy partner in this golden age of Disney. And I feel it's just a, a little less enamored upon it than than even you than even you do because um, because Dumbo is basically doesn't really get past the infant stage mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of in terms of his reactions and uh, and the the ending uh, hits hits a sort of in a bad way in that his fame still makes him part of a circus show. So I actually am in agreement with Peta, who is petitioning for the live-action version of the movie to have, hey, if this elf, little elephant's going to triumph, can he not be part of a circus, which is a horrible exploitation uh, <laughs> it, it is a horrible situation. exploitation. And as far as this live-action Tim Burton thing coming up, just the sight of a CGI Dumbo in clown makeup was enough to turn me off to all of that business. Yes. <laughs> And I, I want to add some slight, really weird little coda about this film, which is that, isn't that just kind of weird that we still refer to this elephant as the insult that other <laughs> the other creatures dub him? I mean, all you need to do is change his name from Dumbo to Dumbass and go, oh, Dumbass, where it wins out in the end. Well, the message is that he is taking his affliction and making that his source of talent and pride. That's true, but you can't, doesn't mean you should still call him dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Is Jumbo Jr. Damn it. (laughs) This philosophical debate will have to (laughs) continue at another point in time while we, uh, while we head into a little more realistic territory in 1942's Bambi. Much fanfare accompanies the birth of Bambi, a young fawn considered the prince of the forest due to his father's mighty stature. But Bambi is raised by his mother and makes friends with a rabbit named Thumper and a skunk named Flower. As the seasons change, Bambi goes through the trials of growing up, but nothing can compare the young deer for what happens when man enters the forest. 
Bambi is about growing up, and it's about that in a way that no other Disney film has ever been. And it's unique in the Disney canon. It was conceived to come out very soon after Snow White, but because of various factors we've discussed had been pushed back. Bambi is a new form of animation for Disney in its attempt to be far more realistic than they ever have been, using actual animal models to help the animators portray each of the forest dwellers not only as they move and as they exist in nature, but also in ways that allows their personalities to come out, but not to the extent that they're no longer rabbits or deers or skunks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were ta- we've been talking about how uh, at different at different points, different characters in, in in Disney films, they have traits of the animals that uh, that they are, but at certain points they have they have these human traits. And sometimes the films do that goofy Pluto dichotomy where you see where like Cleo watching people eat fish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here it's really interesting how you said that this was in development right after Snow White. Not only because Many of the deer depicted in Snow White have a proto-Bambi-like aspect to them. But this is where I feel Disney takes his, these ideas of just at what level are the animals animals mm-hmm. and what level do the animals speak and behave and makes it – it's one of its – the most focused. It is so focused on the – on getting those intrinsic details for how – animals behave in nature just right from the 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 cultish manner bambi first learns how to stand right to how animals scurry away from a blaze or the threat of hunters it's doing so much so on the animal side that humans are completely abstracted they're literally out of the picture you don't see so much of a silhouette of a human instead they're just like this existential threat That's one of the brilliant uh, touches of the film, because the threat isn't an individual. It's not a hunter, or a this, or a that. It's man as a concept to an animal in the same way that death is a concept to us. It's just that primal. And so, as a threat, it becomes far more potent than it would otherwise have been. But before we get into the existential threat that growing up represents, I just want to point out how beautifully Bambi represents just stages of life. Yes, they're animals, but it's possibly the most universal of any Disney movie because it's less about individual things that happen and more about what it means to grow up in a way that everyone can relate to. We're following Bambi as, as an infant and as, as, as a young toddler and the animation is so, so delicate. I, I think 
there's a handful of, of masterpieces that we're going to be talking about, and, and this is right up there. But it's so different than the other ones, because the other ones are very bombastic and mm. very in-your-face. This one has such a light touch to it, except when it doesn't. You've got the innocent quality, first friendships, first signs of love, uh, a, parent, a parent-son relationship, a distant father, a loving mother, all these really great concepts. And the movie, the movie takes its time. It shows the natural world around our main characters. It makes unprecedentedly wonderful use of the multiplane camera in showing the depths of the forest. And so then when, as growing up does for every creature, the introduction of danger, of a loss of innocence, of what it means to face the world as an adult, is Bambi is not messing around. Bambi can be very whimsical, but when Bambi gets serious, it's taking no prisoners. Mm. I think you made a great point about how the film is just become so relatable by dealing on these most basic sensations that people and feelings and developments that people have when they're growing up. Bambi is dealing with these things on this emotional purity that I think he started to touch on with, with the mother cradling little Jumbo in her trunk. Just that, and to which, by the way, I think was the fir- Disney's first example of the quote-unquote Pixar moment. Something that's been described lately of moments where you're watching in a theater and suddenly you find, yeah, it's really dusty in here because oh, you're... Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the sense of pure, heartfelt sentiment getting delivered to you on screen. And whereas Dumbo has those moments, like by just the, mo- the scene I just described, but Bambi... It feels like it's a continuum mm-hmm. <laughs> of those moments. Like you're getting hit over and over and over again. So like your first feeling of walking, the the feeling of how, how walking can transfer towards jumping and then leaping. And then the fir- when and the moment in the meadow when you realize that your family unit is now not just your your mother and father, but there's a whole bunch of people like you and there they are out and they're all running and then you can feel like you can run among them. And then to those, the moments of just great loss. That scene of the death of Bambi's mother, rightly famous as a traumatic moment in many childhoods. But what really struck me when I watched it this time is the power of what comes right after the moment that everyone remembers, which is Bambi wandering around forlornly saying, Mother, where is Mother? But right after that, there's this giant snowstorm, wonderfully rendered through uh, Disney special effects. But we get the first true glimpse of Bambi's father, and the first lines from Bambi's father. And there's actually a quick zoom at this point, which is very unusual 
for a Disney film, but it emphasizes this moment that with the mother gone, now the father is going to impart the harsher lessons really of adolescence because at this point in the film, the child Bambi becomes kind of the, the teenager Bambi. And it also imparts how brilliantly this does maybe in a way better than any other Disney film, how it shows the environment that snow is one of the best just depictions in a Disney film. The changing of the seasons. And in the end of the film, of things being consumed by fire, never has the whole screen been used to just have the world be ex- as so expressionistic as in Bambi. Yeah, the special effects have never been used to to more of a of a gut punch of an effect than that uh, forest fire, in its impressionism of it not truly looking like fire, but looking like the idea of fire. <laughs> it, right. It, it, it does the job even better. It's it's unforgettable. It ties back in with the unseen man as this elemental force yes. of this uncontrollable outsideness. Like we talked about with Pinocchio, putting form to ideas and yes. concepts. Yes. It's notable. That's really nicely said. It's notable how the only visual depictions of man's presence has been the fire and when animals drop and an occasional puff of the ground. Mm-hmm. So it's another it's an elemental thing as the ground erupts when it's really from a, a, a gunshot. And oh my God, I think you're so onto something with that idea that this is it's not fire is the way we would see it. It's fire in the way that the animals would mm-hmm. see it. <laughs> because you th- the more I think on it, like the more I look at Bambi is sort of, an animal's version of German Expressionism. <laughs> German Expressionism was a film style that was meant to not, most famously in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, was used to say, we're going to show things on the film that are not realistic, but they feel right because mm-hmm. people who are scared or angry, and they're going to view things in a certain light. And it's a way to, to make these, evoke these feelings and sensations, but not in a way to be expressly realistic. And, and Bambi's doing this. Multiple times that that multiple approach to animation that we had talked about for Fantasia, mm-hmm. it's kind of brought to bear in here in a lot of ways. Well, it's doing everything because yeah. it is being expressionistic, but it's also the most realistic of all of Disney's animated films. Mm-hmm. It's doing both at the same time, which is a testament again to the ambition of what Disney and his animators are going for here. There's no satisfaction in taking it part way. This is a artistic statement. And in the same way that Fantasia was something that you could barely conceive of as something to present to people, here we're in more of a of a narrative place than Fantasia's in, but the, the ambitions no less. My 
favorite image in Bambi or scene in Bambi, which, as you said, is full of just these great artistic moments in animation, is the moment where Bambi is has a rival for the affections of a, a female deer who uh, he'd uh, named Feline, who had mm-hmm. he'd uh, known earlier. And as a rival tries to shoo her away, he decides to shake his uh, head and r- run towards him, and they do an antler battle. As he's getting worked up for it, the light is descending, and then you start to get a spotlight on Bambi's head. Mm-hmm. I believe that the tint starts changing to become more red. And then as they battle, as they clash, their forms stop becoming fully realistic depictions of the of the animals colliding, but they become these flashes of curved light that are just uh, showing a part of an antler or the side of or the side of the deer as they collide with each other. You're getting literal expressionism of a battle oh, yeah. on animal terms. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, Gorgeous. And, and just mm-hmm. gets at this particular essence of flashes of action mm-hmm. through this conflict in a way that even the most dedicated photorealistic depiction would not. Yeah. Bambi abandons the traditional kind of three-act structure and tries to do something closer to life, which frees the movie for moments like that and also for the way it ends because – after the apocalypse of yeah. the forest fire, everything is, is gone. And where is the hope after that? But Disney has an affinity for nature, and nature finds a way. Forest fires happen, and new life grows in its wake. Wow, just the moods all of this invoke are so primal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one final detail I'd like to point out on Bambi is as an additional little cute bit is how it reverses the naming problem I mentioned with baby Jumbo being called Dumbo Mm -hmm. by having a skunk who is referred to by Bambi at first as Flower and... The skunk takes the name Flower, <laughs> so it's a case of getting a getting a much better name in return. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. That that's a very charming moment. There, there's a lot of charming cartoony moments at the beginning that prepare us for the more intense stuff and the more realistic stuff, and it's just all exists in one film. And one would hope that. Disney would take this success and be able to to carry on with more movies like this. But the real world intervenes again in a couple ways. Once again, Bambi is not a financial success. Mm -hmm. So we've now basically got, we've got the first five films. Only two of the five are making any money. The other issue at hand is Pearl Harbor happens. And America joins the war effort. And that means Disney joins the war effort. The 
entire plan of what was to come next of movies that we're going to talk about in uh as we get into our discussion of the 50s all have to be put on hold Mm -hmm. because the disney studios are going to contribute to the war effort they're going to make propaganda films like uh, victory through air power which uh, comes out in 1943. They're going to do training films just for the soldiers. They're going to work closely with the military on various projects. Uh, One of the most infamous, which is a Donald Duck short called (laughs) Der Fuhrer's Face, also came out in, in 1943. And it's a different kind of Donald Duck short because Donald finds himself... In Nazi Germany, at the height of the war, Donald's traditional comic tone isn't lost, but he takes abuse from his Nazi overlords anytime he strays even a little bit. And you see weird situations like Donald Duck saying Heil Hitler and giving the Nazi salute. It's quite the real world meets... uh, animated whimsy moment (laughs) fortunately disney will avoid such controversies in the near future (laughs) (laughs) they do however manage to uh have a lighter ending to this though because after all the nazi nightmares uh it turns out it was a dream and donald wakes up in his room filled with american flags (laughs) ah yeah a really interesting choice of making uh if you're going to have a certain Disney character uh, be in opposition to a uh, character known for his loud-mouthed, angry, shrieking, ranting, (laughs) that this is the character you would use. Donald Duck will also be a big part of another international effort uh, to strengthen our ties with South America. This was known as the Good Neighbor policy. And uh, those of you who have listened to our previous episodes may remember that Orson Welles was somewhat undone by having to participate in in this particular program. It did not affect Disney in quite uh, as traumatic a way, but we do get a set of two package features out of this, both featuring Donald Duck, uh, Saludos Amigos and the Three Caballeros. Hmm. The progenitor to the three amigos. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? They might be. <laughs> they really might be. For the next movie of note, uh, we're going to move forward to 1946. The war has ended by this point, but Disney Studios can't quite get back on its feet to financially make the kind of features it has been. So we're going to get a series of package films, but also we're going to get some experiments in live action. And probably the first live action Disney film of note is also uh, quite infamous for reasons we're going to discuss 1946's Song of the South. This follows young Johnny, whose father 
uh, leaves him and his mother at his grandmother's Reconstruction era, post-Civil War plantation. There he bonds with a former slave named Uncle Remus, who loves nothing more than to tell stories of how Br'er Rabbit uses his wits to outfox Br'er Fox, ironically, and Br'er Bear. So do we start with the the good news or the bad news? (laughs) Hmm. I would want to go and start with the good news in this particular case, which is that even in the midst of all of the complications involved in the war effort, that Disney is trying to innovate yet again with making a full-length feature combining live action and animation. I hesitate on making this reference too often, but I have to say in a similar way about when the red pill's taken and then you dive into the Matrix, when Uncle Remus is talking about a, a song which can't help but put happiness in your heart, and the background erupts behind him to enter a, a, into a magical cartoon world as he belts out zippity doo which personally to me, I still think is one of the most captivating Disney songs ever made. That's a real jaw-dropping moment. It is the film's moment of greatness. And there really aren't many of them. There, there might not be another one. But that, <laughs> but that moment, I, I have to agree, is... is Pretty stunning with taking that idea that that Disney had worked on so long before with the Alice shorts Mm. and now using technology of the time to make it look. Now, I'm not going to say seamless because we're going to talk about another animation uh, live action combo later on that well ups the ante on this one. But for it for its time, these are incredibly impressive effects and the the song zippity doodah is wonderful and a lot of fun now we get to the bad news which are are two one of the first of which uh it's boring disney is new to live action at this stage and the story itself for me as far as pacing as far as kind of the disney magic we've come to expect does not here translate into live action the way uh, it eventually would. Of course, the other problem is that this movie is dealing with some really racist uh, tropes. Uncle Remus, who is played by James Baskett, an elderly African-American actor, is a character that's depicted as kindly and helpful and folksy, but unfortunately because of the context, because of the time and place and attitudes about race during Reconstruction and during when this film was made, it feeds into some incredibly toxic forms of racism, basically about how blacks were just happy to be on the plantation and were loyal to the white plantation owners Even after the war had ended, they were supposedly free, but there's still this deference, there's still this inequality that reeks through this film. Uncle Remus is not at this point a slave, but he spent most of his life as a slave. And that context changes every scene 
where he's being berated and yelled at by the young boy's mother. And this film is so steeped in the racism of the period that it just can't recover from it. It, it, it pollutes every element of it. And it doesn't help that when we get to the animated sequences, which just kind of on a filmmaking level help the film's pacing and it comes to life a bit just because they have more of a feel of how to do them. But much right. like the, the crows in Dumbo, the animated characters are all uh, basically voiced as black stereotypes as well. I had a unique perspective on this because I saw this... Uh, movie for this podcast, but before that, I'd actually read a couple of the old Br'er Rabbit tales hmm. that were uh, the basis on this, and and the tales to me were more upon Br'er Rabbit being able to use his wits and finding very ingenious ways to get out of uh, get out of a situation. And here in the animated sections, it's just a lot more treated as like uh, these scattered animation shorts of characters getting themselves into high, high intensity scrapes that cause a lot of running and yelling and screaming and, and manic activity more than any sort of ingenuity or um, wit involved. It's kind of like the animators were for the first time looking at Warner brothers cartoons uh, as an inspiration, but they don't quite have the touch for that kind of thing. Yeah. And then to kind of just shift to, Another element of the film that just doesn't work at all for me is the melodrama of its ending, where after listening to all these stories, the, the, there's a lot of business with the young boy and some bullies, things that I never felt were too involving. But then he basically gets run over by a bull at one point. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't, don't you get the, I don't know about you, but I got this sensibility that the filmmakers had uh, a list of scenes that were done in live action and then a list of scenes that were meant to be done in animation. And maybe that part kind of fell into the other pile. Here's the other thing. It, it reminded me of the little girl being thrown from the horse and gone with the wind yeah. in, the, in the way that seeped into soap opera-ness. Then if you look at the racial... Uh, politics have gone with the wind. It has a lot of the same problems as this film. Hmm. And both of them share Hattie McDaniel right. in another negative stereotype role. That's pretty amusing in that Hattie McDaniel shows up really early and then doesn't appear. So in a way, it might have been a get way of getting the endorsement of one of the most famous historical portrayals of an African uh, an African American made in movies the only oscar winning African American actress at the, or actor at that point exactly mm -hmm. and yet now it has a kind of token treatment for a completely negative uh sense right right <laughs> <laughs> and it's a common accusation of uh, many uh, African American characters like in Bagger Vance of the mm. quote unquote magical negro mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it's made literal at the end, as as I guess Uncle Remus has some magic storytelling powers, which heal being trampled uh, by a bull. <laughs> and there's yeah. a real there, and it, it, the movie ends as kind of a mess in that, like the father comes back from 
a job in Atlanta where where his motivations for going there and leaving his family at the plantation are never really established. But he there's a scene where he comes back and the kid wakes up and immediately says, oh, good, Uncle Remus, you're here. <laughs> so the dad, man, not so much, huh? Yeah. So if all this wasn't depressing enough, there's a there's a Citizen Kane correlation here what? because uh, young Johnny's mother is played by uh, Ruth Warwick, who was uh, the first Mrs. Kane in one of the greatest films ever made. Oh my! But, and 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 I don't know how this worked because you can't tell it from the film. Uh, the cinematographer was Greg Tolan. Who revolutionized the entire industry with his work on Citizen Kane? Wow, <laughs> wow! I would have never guessed from the li- from the live action. There even isn't even that many ceilings that right. are shown on, <laughs> on the plantation. Wow! In a, in in a podcast that we've made that's been full of amazing connections, that's one of the more astounding ones. To be quite, <laughs> who would have thought? Song of the South and the Citizen Kane connection. We will never speak of it again. (laughs) But having said what we've said about the film, uh, it it may surprise some people to know that I do not believe that it's justified that Song of the South has no legitimate release. There was uh, apparently a videotape once upon a time in the 80s, and that was the last time there was a release. There's, there currently are bootleg DVDs and availability that way. But there, there is an opportunity here because as a Disney film, it, it holds a place in culture. And if there were to be a release with documentaries discussing the racial context of the film, what people thought about at the time, the racial uh, tropes we've been discussing and the historical context, that could go a long way to educate a lot of people about periods of our history. And instead, Disney is just pretending it never happened. And I I understand that motivation, but I, I do think there is an opportunity to have what we're calling today a teachable moment. Mm. In addition to being to trying to make these animation and film achievements, Disney was also had the business angle to contend to, and he had the first-hand dealings with the kind of financial and logistical setbacks in the case of the war to deal with. So, starting with Dumbo onwards, I feel we're going to start to get to an idea of like when does Disney, the creative force towards innovation, exists and has to coexist with Disney, the entity, the icon, the brand, the style that people are familiar with. That will happen, but it's not going to happen for a number of years because it's going to take that long for the studios to recover from the financial losses of the war and of their films not making a profit. These movies now had to be made really cheap, and the Disney answer to that was the package film. So in quick succession, you have three of these. And by the way, these package films, that doesn't mean they're bad. They're collections of shorts, 
And some of the shorts have a great deal of charm to them and are shorts in the Disney tradition we've come to love. But because they're shorts, they can be made for a lot less than feature-length animation. So in 1946, you have Make Mine Music, which uh, features segments uh, based on Peter and the Wolf another classical music excursion, as well as Casey at Bat. Then in 1947, you have Fun and Fancy Free, known most for Mickey and the Beanstalk, one of the more acclaimed Mickey, Donald, and Goofy shorts. I want to add that mm-hmm. that's pumping where it show Mickey's ingenuity with sewing gets a great ah, use in that. Yes. <laughs> and then Melody Time in 1948, uh, which has some historical shorts in it, The Legend of Johnny Appleseed and Pecos Bill. So to represent all those package films, we're going to talk a little more about the last one and the one that's probably the most well-known, The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Released in 1949. The moonlight does funny things, I've heard the wise man say. But when you're in love, your moon shines every day. You don't even care if you're living or you're dead. You're the creature without a head. The cats in the rooftops, the squirrels in that tree. Two very different classic tales are told, beginning with the very English adaptation of Kenneth Graham's Wind in the Willows, about a wealthy toad with the need for speed, followed by some early Americana in the form of Washington Irving's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, following schoolmaster Ichabod Crane as he attempts to find love without losing his head. Although, does he lose his head so much as gain another head? (laughs) Now, I have to admit, I have a very particular appreciation for this collection of two stories, especially on The Wind in the Willows, because some of the characters in Wind in the Willows are these disreputable group of weasels. (laughs) And I'm a huge fan of the Robert Zemeckis film, Who Framed Roger Rabbit?, where um, evil weasels play a very prominent part in that, and those are the self-same weasels. This is where they came from. And I had no idea. So it's oh, that was really, really cool. And much like the very opening of Roger Rabbit, which is a frenetic tribute towards the incredibly zany animation in the style of Tex Avery, Warner Brothers, and some of the more frantic Donald Duck cartoons. Mm -hmm. It was very charming to see when all hell breaks loose uh, late in the Wind in the Willows film. What it doesn't feel feel like that much to me is very British. (laughs) More crazy. (laughs) Right, but each of the films has a different narrator to kind of sum up its origin. So in the Wind in the Willows segment, we have Basil Rathbone. Uh, bring- a very person, great person to have in your corner. For, for sure. And then when we get to the, the second part, it'll be Bing Crosby. But sticking with Toad, I got into a little bit of trouble with this one because I have already read the source book, uh, Wind in the Willows, an absolutely wonderful uh, children's book that 
is far more poetic and lyrical than most children's books allow themselves to be. Mm. And uh, frankly, I think it's, it's a great reading experience even for adults. The problem is that the Toad segment basically takes one aspect from the book and runs with it. So anyone who's a big fan of Wind in the Willows isn't necessarily going to get that kind of uh, style from, from this film. Now, it's fun. It's got a lot of chase scenes because Toad is this devil-may-care character who's constantly being overtaken by manias and hobbies, and they all involve things that help him go faster and faster, starting uh, with a horse who he forms quite the bond with before moving on to cars. And then the film gets bogged down in a bit of a long trial sequence. (laughs) (laughs) One of the interesting things to kind of go back to the theme we've been bringing up a lot about how cartoony is something versus a person or an animal is the particular interaction between humans and animals in this world is strange because the, all the authority figures, uh, policemen, judges, anybody with any authority seems to be human But the animals are interacting with them, talking with them, living in the same society, but they're still kind of small and animal-sized, and it it really brings up way too many questions about how this particular, uh, how these interactions really work. (laughs) Yes, yeah, I sort of felt the same way, um, uh, similar to the way how there's a group of people who find themselves lost in the uncanny value when it comes to the Pixar car series. They're they're just wondering, like, wait, how does this society based on cars having their own houses or (laughs) what? And there's a similar kind of uh, confusion out of, well, the horse is being treated like as a pack animal, but he's being ridden by a toad wearing clothes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I feel that, like, there's... A lot of that devil may care spirit that Toad inhabits, especially when he he goes straight up screwy squirrel level crazy mm-hmm. when he see, sees a motor car, like just starts sputtering pure gibberish. <laughs> that um, that I rode with it, or I or at least I took the cartoon at that level, and I had not read those the lyrical stories that you were describing. Mm-hmm. So I guess I have the benefit of the ignorance is bliss benefit of not having the basis of this of feeling this has been a bastardized material right it it functions as an enjoyable disney short and that's kind of what's going on during this period of disney also what's what hits me is really funny watching it for the podcast is <laughs> we mentioned citizen kane connection earlier of all things on song mm-hmm. of the south this one has a bit of a magnificent Amberson's vibe. <laughs> as as uh, as the populace is at odds with this newfangled motor car and right. are offended by Mr. Toad for bringing such a hideous <laughs> contraption into what is such an otherwise idyllic small town or small hamlet environment. Well, that raises a lot of questions about Toad Hall, then. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> I really enjoyed Wind in the Willows. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, on the other hand, was a little bit different. For one, I definitely could tell that this was like if singles for music have Mm B-sides where it would not stand in its own, but it's meant to tag along. I really felt that the um, Legend of Sleepy Hollow was the B-side to this particular package deal. Um, I can say that 
that the animation in The Wind in the Willows is of a higher quality and not just in more animation and more mm-hmm. activity, but it's also a lot more extensive than Legend of Sleepy Hollow. I had never seen the Wind in the Willows segment as a kid, but I have grown up with the Ichabod Crane segment. But my memory of it was warped Hmm. because I always remembered it as this spooky Halloween thing. This uh, short to watch every Halloween to get into that safe kid mode of Halloween where you're enjoying all the uh, all the imagery while you're waiting for your candy and, and, and that good stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching it for the podcast for the first time in decades and realizing that they don't get to that till the very end, and it's hardly in it at all. There is a lot of... Not great character development <laughs> leading up to it. Um. <laughs> I, well, I am in complete agreement that all the things you remember, or most people remember from the Legend of Sleepy Hollow animated short, is in fact the last ten percent of this short. Right <laughs> there is, and there is a lot of setup on these characters who, while they're quite distinct, there's two problems with the, the distinction. First off. Is it's a distinction that people are familiar with if they've ever seen a single Popeye cartoon. <laughs> yep. Because the Bluto Popeye olive oil dynamic is at play here. Now, to be fair, it's based off a story that was written hundreds of years before Popeye. But nevertheless, that's that's the thing that's gonna strike people as weird. But also, the characters, while distinct, what they don't have is any measure of sympathy towards them. I was going to say that because the th- the, where the Popeye thing falls apart for me is mm-hmm. when I'm watching a Popeye cartoon, I'm rooting for Popeye. In this case, well, well, I'm not really rooting for the Bluto character known here as Brom Bones. I'm also not rooting for Ichabod Crane. Because he's kind of terrible. <laughs> he's kind. Of, he's basically this weird-looking Casanova type, but he's only interested in women for their food uh, and and for their abilities as a cook and also for their money, as at one point we it's clarified that he views his uh, love object as just a financial transaction. So, yeah, way to just cut out any protagonist identification here. Right. Basically, imagine like Don Knotts is a wannabe gigolo and you're sort of getting to it, except that Don Knotts might actually be more considerably that's, more. That's something I'd actually want to see that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Something about that like struck me as just uh, really it was really funny. First off, just in how completely mercenary Ichabod was depicted. His visual, creative visualizations of of uh, a barn overflowing with money that he would just get by mm-hmm. trying to seduce these people, and also just the way he would just hang around at different places just so he could have the food that they have to offer, and he would support choir and uh, right. uh, for just solely that purpose, just immediately makes him this kind of like rather sle- sleazy opportunist that uh, doesn't give you any sympathy after to belie. The fact that he looks to be 
uh, 50% bones and 50% ears. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and, and the love interest of, of the two uh, men is basically depicted as a pinup model. Uh, yeah. yeah. With no real personality of her own. Just uh, coming after, yeah, coming but, yeah. after the activity of how Wind in the Willows was depicted and then immediately following up by looking at her, I was like seeing, am I looking at Disney's rendition of Red Hot Riding Hood? Well, it's all about, you mentioned it before, it's almost a, a precursor to Jessica Rabbit. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right, right. Great, great point. And there's a really funny detail about that too, because Ichabod Crane is so obsessed with food in this uh, film, they never really miss a moment to see his eyes light up and slathering over something at a buffet table <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> whenever they whenever they cut to him in many ways the scenes where he's scared and the scenes where he's eating food make this the rosetta stone for everyone involved in creating the shaggy character from <laughs> scooby doo but the the notable thing i f- found on this was was every time they cut to him and he's he's putting in food and stuffing food in his mouth and it's so at odds with the idea of that he wants to be romantically involved with right. this lady who looks like a pinup model that I was literally thinking that this that was a classic Disney-fied move. In other words, you're not going to just talk about sexual attraction. Right. You're just going to sublimate it by selling food. Oh, you really, really like... It's a replacement re- for what cannot be mentioned. Exactly. Exactly. Most notably, a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's really cool, is that the um, pirates in the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at, uh, at the Disney theme park, there was a controversy that had erupted uh, a couple of years back because part of it shows animatronic pirates chasing animatronic wenches around the table mm-hmm. and and that was this was starting to raise some questions as to why the pirates were chasing them such that the uh, the ingenious solution that they thought up was to take the animatronic ladies and give giant slabs of ham in their arms <laughs> <laughs> so that the pirates are chasing them of course because of their hams problem and solved problem solved right so imagine my surprise when i go back to the source material and read the Washington Irving story after seeing this short. And it actually is exactly a faithful. <laughs> the, the short story actually has paragraphs and paragraphs about how Ichabod Crane lusts, has a pure animal lust. That's all the delicious food that it has to <laughs> offer. And so, and so, oh my God, no, I, I was doing a disservice. And he was not, they were not Disney-fying the plot at all. It's incredibly faithful to that part of the story. The other big thing about whether you'll enjoy this part of the, the, the movie or not is your affinity for one Bing Crosby. Because <laughs> yeah. un- unlike the Basil Rathbone na- just narrating the Wind in the Willows section, Bing Crosby is narrating and doing the voices for all the characters and singing, and is just all over this thing. (laughs) Now, we're in 1949 now. Bing Crosby is the biggest thing there is. He's huge. But for me, his charms have always been a little elusive. So while I could understand uh, Bing Crosby making the film quite popular at the time, none of his uh, shtick is really helping me enjoy it. (laughs) Well, that's a really interesting point in in two different ways. For one, is that while Basil Rathbone is a 
absolutely successfully sells the Wind in the Wills narration as the sense of the genteel manners that belies at least the original story. Mm-hmm. Bing comes across as, to me, in his narration, as the same way that uh, Bill Murray's lounge singer from Saturday Night Live does. In other words, he comes across as uh, too cool for school <laughs> in the kind of tale. Right. And his depictions of these um, revolutionary war era practices. Is, oh, bo 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 look at him checking out that food. Oh, uh, hubba hubba. Is, is, uh, uh, there's quite a discrepancy, <laughs> I feel, going going on there. No, And no less so when he is the prospective voice of, of both the burly Brom Bones and mm-hmm. the incredibly gangly um, mm-hmm. Ichabod. <laughs> and the other really notable discrepancy, and this is uh, uh, maybe the biggest example of Walt Disney putting in a ringer for his film work. Because as we've talked about many notable characters in the films he's done up to now, with the exception of the first wife of Charles Foster Kane, Mm -hmm. we have not really encountered a, a straight up celebrity who's gracing Disney with his presence. I did learn something, though, which I didn't know about Jiminy Cricket. Turns out that Cliff Edwards, who uh, was the voice of Jiminy Cricket in Pinocchio, was actually a pretty big deal back then. I've never heard of him, but uh, the Blu-ray documentary uh, makes a a point that he was definitely a celebrity at the time. Wow. Oh, that's really, really fascinating. I had no idea, and... I will stand half corrected <laughs> because, uh, to be fair to me, uh, he may have been a big deal back in that era, but Bing Crosby was the Elvis Presley of his right. day. We've heard of Bing Crosby. We haven't heard of Cliff Edwards. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting facet. Mm-hmm. But the biggest thing on it, on Crosby's appearance is that it is a poor fit for right. telling this a revolutionary war type tale, especially when uh, Brom Bones gets to a a hep beat as <laughs> telling this smooth talking tale of the headless horseman. I don't think you're supposed to think of the headless horseman and start snapping your fingers and going groovy, man. <laughs> but there's where the animation really does pick up because there is a reason. I think a lot of people remember that sequence from their childhoods. It it, it is. It is short and out of, out of context, but when they finally get to the Headless Horseman stuff, it delivers. It absolutely does. That Again, I feel that every uh, animator on Scooby-Doo was furiously scribbling, on, uh, <laughs> and partly because Ichabod goes through so many different kinds of scared reactions yes. to what, what happens <laughs> when he finally meets up with uh, the uh, shadowy headless figure. <laughs> and, uh, and heck, even the horse does go through several stages of outright panic, <laughs> uh, panic as well. And the figure is great. The, like, there's a particular image of him leaping over a ridge with a hideous cackle, which is just a beautifully evocative visual. The last we end up seeing of Ichabod is his hat and a smashed pumpkin, which may or may not have been the head hurled by the horseman. And in a really fun cosmic detail, uh, <laughs> smashing pumpkins are also a concern <laughs> of Disney's movie he made afterwards, 1950s Cinderella. It's sad to see. 
In this tale, it's about the beautiful and kind Cinderella who is forced into cruel servitude by her wicked stepmother and jealous stepsisters. Thanks to the intervention of her fairy godmother, Cinderella's rags transform into a gown and her pumpkin becomes a carriage, taking her to the royal ball where she meets Prince Charming, but loses some footwear along the way. This is the next phase of the Disney story because... Mm. Had the package films kept on going, they would have basically had to stop making animated films. They were not making money, and they had to come up with a feature that was a sure thing. Mm. And what made the most money ever for Disney up to that point? A princess. Mm -hmm. So we are now going to bring back another princess and start an entire genre over again. Cinderella is both lo looking forwards and looking backwards. Looking backwards is as, as you say. You take the things that were successful and things that resonated in his first film and grab those particular elements in use. But to look forward, I'm going to give a crazy analogy. Mm-hmm. Cinderella is to Disney what Goldfinger is to the James Bond series. Oh, oh do continue. Some people think a Goldfinger is the best Bond movie, but what it is, is the James Bond movie. Mm -hmm. Because while the earlier two films on the James Bond series had elements that we would know James Bond from, Goldfinger was the first to have everything that we know when you talk about a James Bond movie. Mm -hmm. The gadgets, the opponents, the rivals, the henchmen, the love interest, and so on. Cinderella is the Disney princess movie. It is the uber alpha and omega of what the princess movie is. Yeah, it's... The one that, where the story itself, I think, is most embedded in our collective consciousness. Who doesn't feel like they were born with the knowledge of the slipper that doesn't fit and Prince Charming and the pumpkin that turns into a carriage and, and all those iconic things really beautifully rendered by Disney animators as we have come to expect but of the three princess movies we're going to be talking about during Disney's lifetime, this is actually probably my least favorite of, of them. And, and it mostly has nothing to do with the main story or Cinderella herself, but what I think is an over-reliance on the silly cat-and-mouse antics going on in this Every Disney movie has their comic relief. Every Disney movie has their funny little B-plot. But this one has way too much screen time because I think they realized the actual story of Cinderella was a little short. The cat and mouse stuff by, by the 50s is so familiar. We grew up with Tom and Jerry yep. and, and all this kind of business that it really didn't feel fresh at all. I do feel that there is a little bit of a mercenary aspect on, on putting in so much of the cat and mouse dynamics mm -hmm. here, which 
which on on a very tangentially related thing makes the appearance of the um, king and his uh, escort as Hessians seem all the more uh, ironically apt. <laughs> this is also the princess movie that has the idea of the uh, hapless parents trying to go and set the prince up right. and uh, deals with a lot of uh, his frantic attempts to have grandchildren in a way to justify the uh, very strict edicts of having everybody attend the ball. Also, the incredibly arbitrarily convenient fairy godmother Mm -hmm. (laughs) to me has just really pasted on just to be able to do that uh, Dr. Seussian bibbidi-bobbidi-boo tune. (laughs) And one of the things we were talking about, about about the animals and humans interacting, there's a very, very strange moment where not just the pumpkin turns into a carriage, but the horse in the movie turns into a horse carriage rider whose job it is is to yank the reins (laughs) of the mice who are now horses. Right. Which... I cannot imagine a way that that would not mess <laughs> a creature like that up to be put in that position. <laughs> Sometimes I think this stuff too much. <laughs> but Cinderella does not really give us a lot to dive into so much as that it's a refinement of those elements of Snow White and the idea of giving comic sidekicks and comic relief interludes and just making it into a formula. I unfortunately see this as a way of just, whereas some characters and situations you say they broke the mold, mm-hmm. here I really kind of see the mold being formed. And this is the moment where you're going to get the sad scene. This is the moment where you're going to get the, the, charming, co- the charming comic scene. And events happen because of the kind of thing you want to deliver to an audience rather than something that seems to flow naturally. In recent years, Disney has started to become very self-referential, and they did this film with Amy Adams called Enchanted that kind of took the Mickey, no pun intended, Ah, out of of the whole uh, princess (laughs) genre. And it is kind of this story that I think gets most of that kind of parody and it's just because it is so familiar there's also some nice wish fulfillment going on with uh the idea of this young lady who's basically been enslaved by her family and is forced to do all these menial chores getting a chance to live out her dreams there's something basic and nice about that and disney captures that i'm just not sure Cinderella captures much else. Mm. There's something I find that's uh, apart from the not niceness of the now obvious trope of the uh, of a lady needing a prince to go and save them, but in addition, there's that situation that of course Cinderella should get the, the her moment of true love because. Her stepsisters are two hideously ugly crones, <laughs> and it's so ridiculous that they would ever find happiness anywhere. And it's also treated as uh, that the stepmother for Cinderella is just an awful person for doing deference to the two people she's actually born herself. <laughs> <laughs> Which um, uh, obviously the step, the evil stepmother thing had predated Disney, but. 
you give it a moment's thought, it's like, okay, I mean, not, not, not necessarily as uh, unlikely as you would think. That's kind of like a reappraisal of the, the tropes themselves, which is interesting to think about. I think the movie does provide itself a little cover on that front, just in that the sisters, in addition to not really uh, being lookers, are also quite mean and nasty. And True. Cinderella is kind to animals and whatnot. That's, <laughs> that's, that's right. There's one thing that has manifested itself is that there is a basic kindness towards the animal kingdom that gets reciprocated. And in this one's a very it's interestingly specific because much like how in a guy movie you would have an A-team like montage of people building an air cannon, <laughs> um, <laughs> you get the animals helping out to build a dress for Cinderella. However, it's might be pretty fascinating if you compare it to an earlier scene where a mouse has been caught in a trap and Cinderella has made little hats and <laughs> clothes for them. Mm-hmm. That's a detail of like where you go, well, Okay, what's what's happening here? But it also gives a level of payback to the uh, to the for the animals that wasn't necessarily there before. Right. Right. <laughs> On the other hand, though, for however anonymous she is, the prince may as well have not been animated at all and could have just been a poster. <laughs> These princess movies cannot give their princes any personality. That That is definitely established in, in the three princess movies we'll discuss. At least the prince in Snow White is a uh, Dick Powell-level crooner. <laughs> right. Of being able to, be serenade, to be able to serenade people. The one here is a suit. <laughs> but one thing Cinderella does accomplish is bringing Disney animation back in full force. They had the huge hit that they needed. And with the beginning of the fifties, they never looked back. They also have this stable of talent, probably the most impressive in animation history. Mm. There have been great animators throughout from the earliest Mickey all the way through the forties, starting in the fifties, a group of animators who have been there all along, kind of as apprentices, will come into their own. And every movie from this point on is going to feature the talents of a group of animators known as the Nine Old Men. Now, at the time, they were not actually old men. They were, they were nine young men. But by the time of Cinderella, they have come into their own. And when we talk about the talent involved in all of these films... We are talking about people like Les Clark, Mark Davis, Ollie Johnson, Milt Call, Ward Kimball, Eric Larson, John Lounsbury, Wolfgang Reitherman, and Frank Thomas. They are the legends of the field. And while we have been giving Walt all the credit because he deserves it, He's the guy that makes the decision. He's an idea man. He's the guy that makes sure these films work the way that he wants them to work. But without the talent of the nine old men, it wouldn't be the Disney we know. That's a really great point that it's one thing to be able to have our, our particular head animator vision, but it's another to have a roster, a baseball field level mm-hmm. of these exceptional animators and to have them for such an sustained amount of time, such that it can be referred to fondly as the nine old men. So with animation back in full force, Disney's got another trick up their sleeves. 
They want to go live action. And the first fully live action film they embark upon is Treasure Island, released in 1950. In the mid-1700s, young Jim Hawkins comes across a pirate's treasure map. This gains him the attention of actual pirates, particularly the sly and ruthless Long John Silver, who schemes his way onto a ship bound for Treasure Island. He and his crew take over and kidnap Jim, and then it's war between the sailors and the pirates. Now, after all what we've said about Disney's many, many innovations as an animator, and the sheer effort towards pursuing those goals, it leads to the question then, of then why would he decide to go and jump into an all-live-action The answer might be financial. It is far cheaper to produce live-action content than elaborate feature-length Disney animation. And we're going to discuss three fully live-action films in the two parts of this podcast. They're going to represent... 20 or 30 more films that we're not going to discuss. They were coming out at two, three a year. Varying qualities. These early live-action films uh, were all filmed in the UK just to further save costs. Eventually, Mm. we'd start to get stars, but at this point, it's mostly casts of unknowns based on well-known properties the next live-action film done after this is going to be a Robin Hood adaptation. So I think we're heading into a period of diversification that we're going to talk a lot more about at the beginning of part two of the podcast. But as for why, I think there, I think there's some dollar signs uh, behind that. Mm, this might be the, the transition of period where Disney the creative force but he's always been inhabited with Disney as the business force as well. And here is a case where the business force seems to get a little more prevalence. Now, the question that we have to ask, I think, is how much of the creative force is there in Treasure Island? Well, for me, uh, some. I think Treasure Island is enjoyable enough. It's a likable adaptation. It looks good. It doesn't look great. It is not at the level of Disney's best animated work, and he'll soon eclipse this in his live-action work. But did I enjoy watching it? Sure, it's a fun, silly pirate yarn. 
for me, I kind of wish it was more piratey for a pirate yarn. Uh, because we see Mr. Long John Silver in the, the, the ultimate job of a pirate buccaneer, tending bar. <laughs> well, he is undercover. <laughs> yes. All pirates are known for their <laughs> subterfuge and being masters of disguise. <laughs> uh, and also, he does not really look like a pirate so much as, um, to me, it looked like uh, Anthony Newley looking like Polly from the Rocky series. He's just seems like more of a slimy pub denizen than any sort of guy upon the high seas. He doesn't <laughs> seem like a legitimate pirate. Right. But here, here, here's the <laughs> right. thing about this movie. Like, there's one thing this movie is known for, and that is the performance by Robert Newton as Long John Silver. It explains Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> it just demonstrates how if you get a guy to just go all in on pirate, nothing else really matters. People thought when this movie came out that he had invented things like R and Shiver Me Timbers and all the kind of Talk Like a Pirate Day stuff. Hmm. And he just relishes every bit of it. There is not a pirate cliche from the parrot to the peg leg that he just doesn't chew scenery with and spit it out. He is a blast. I mean, whether he's doing anything for the movie as a whole, as far as the story or, or, or coherency, that I'm not so sure of. But I do, I, for me, he's just really fun to watch doing, doing just pirate stuff to the nth degree. <laughs> I'm actually going to do an, a crazy comparison here, uh, uh, really deranged, and most because <laughs> I was just lucky enough to see a restored version of The Lady from Shanghai recently, mm -hmm. but I felt there was a little bit of a discrepancy between how he is an undercover pirate, so right. I'm trying to sort that out. While I'm trying to sort that out, part of the reason it's so di I found it so difficult he is, is he is the most obviously disreputable person in the movie. And the first half of the film is him posing as a lowly assistant on a ship to get to <laughs> Treasure Island. And he's supposed to be doing this and getting the crew undercover when it is blaringly obvious to even small children who have been asleep that he is not to be trusted. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I was... The over-the-topness is not helping with the believability. Exactly, exactly. To almost a way where I was thinking that it's... Uh, say what you will about Johnny Depp as portrayal. He's totally believing in his uh, in his in his character as a as a pirate. Whereas here, you're just here you're just thinking. Wait, is the movie messing with me? <laughs> <laughs> at least that's what I felt from my current perspective, well, well, non kid perspective. Folks at the time disagreed a bit because mm -hmm. he became a huge pop culture figure ah. and. 
played Long John Silver again in two other projects, neither of which were produced by the Disney Studios. Uh, are you kidding? So he no. does like the Lady Vanishes, the two guys from the Lady Vanishes. That's right, <laughs> yes. So in 1954, there's a film called Long John Silver okay. that's basically just him chewing the scenery some more. And then he does a TV series for a couple of years, The Adventures of Long John Silver, which is noted for being one of the first shows to be shot in Australia. Australia. Huh. That sounds like that, at least if this may be a second phase out for Walt Disney, it seems that he both barrels got fired and hit their targets. <laughs> like he managed a successful animation piece on Cinderella, and then his debut as a full-featured live-action one seemed to go over, at least as far as character-wise, really successfully. It makes me wonder if it was a financial success as well. I believe it was, so... Like you say, mission accomplished there, and that allowed Disney to go on producing both kinds of films. Treasure Island has a, a couple other kind of strange quirks to it, one of which is that it's pretty violent for a 1950 kids movie. There is uh, a number of scenes of, of blood and sword striking, and one in particular where somebody is shot and you kind of see a bloody face. It's not particularly graphic from the standpoint of a PG-13 rated movie today, but it's just strange in a Disney family film. Also, in the United States, the production code would have still been in full effect, and this movie... Wouldn't have passed muster, although I maybe because it was shot in England, it was able to. The bad guy wins, and that's usually uh, not allowed. Right. He is a, he is allowed to escape with the treasure. Yes, that's true. Though Long John Silver shows a measure of sympathy towards the little kid, right? That uh, mm -hmm. does not show that he's all bad. Unlike his scurvy laden mates, he is a um. A, he is a pirate of some principles that he feels that the the uh, his young charge is um uh, exceeding to. <laughs> Again, Johnny Depp is paying attention, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure Disney was paying attention to both these films because, to the extent that people now have no Disney from the Jonas Brothers, the that darn cat, the Shaggy Dog, <laughs> and the computer with tennis shoes. To an extent that they know Disney as a studio from The Rescuers to The Lion King and so on, we can have Treasure Island to thank as making the origin point for that. For sure. And as to where that goes, we will discuss in part two of our Walt Disney podcast. Yes. Thanks for you guys for listening to part one of our look at Walt Disney. If you have any favorite moments of or notable elements of the films we had talked about or want to comment upon what we had to say about uh, Walt Disney and his efforts, you can uh, feel free to give us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. The Directors Club is found in multiple places across the internet, from iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook at Directors Club Podcast, under Twitter at DC Podcast, and our episodes are available on our website of directorsclubpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and hope to catch you on another episode of the Directors Club. We will be returning with Walt Disney Part 2 and our next episode. 